Hello, I'm Chris Galvin with the International Code of Conduct Association, otherwise known as ICOCA. I'm pleased to introduce the third episode in ICOCA's new podcast series, Future Security Trends, Implications for Human Rights. Today, I'll be in conversation with Jean-Marc Rickley, a world expert on technology and security, to discuss the future of technology and security, a force for good or bad. Jean-Marc is Head of Global Risk and Resilience at the Geneva Center for Security Policy, also known as GCSP. Prior to this, he was Assistant Professor at King's College London in the Department of Defense Studies. So Jean-Marc, could you first tell us a bit about yourself and the work of the Geneva Center for Security Policy? So thank you for, for, for having me uh, on this uh, on this podcast. So uh, the Geneva Center for Security Policy is an international nonprofit uh, foundation physically based in Geneva, Switzerland. And uh, we are uh, comprised of uh, 53 uh, member states of which all the five permanent members of the UN Security uh, Council. Our mission is to promote uh, international peace and security to prepare trend and transform individuals and organizations so they can create a safer world. And uh, we do that through uh, different uh, tracks. We uh, devote a lot of time through executive education, research, public discussion, and we also have a fellowship program for uh, executive uh, in uh, transition. So we are a bit of an hybrid organization. We are not an academic institution as such. We are not. Uh, a think tank as such, but we are uh, a bit of um, uh, the two. As for me, I'm in charge of in, um, global risk and uh, resilience. So I mainly focus on uh, the transformation of uh, warfare and how technology and emerging technologies are impacting warfare, but I'm also surveying uh, what happened in the world, in geopolitics, and uh, prior to that, I was based for five years in uh, the Middle East, in the Gulf, where I was teaching, as you mentioned, for King's College uh, London, in Qatar, and before that, I was based at the Khalifa University in, uh, in the uh, UAE. But my work now, nowadays is uh, devoted to really trying to spot weak signals in terms of uh, technology developments and how they will affect the way people are using uh, violence and uh, which one. Well, thank you so much for that, Jean-Marc. Now, you gave a thought-provoking and sometimes frightening talk last November at the first workshop that ICOCA convened on future security trends, uh, during which you illustrated how technology is experiencing exponential growth. The world's first-hand experience living with the consequences of this phenomenon now, uh, the phenomenon of exponential growth with the spread of COVID-19, but could you describe how this concept applies to the technology sector and whether we should be equally afraid of it? Sure. So as you rightly mentioned, I mean, over the last uh, f three, four months, we really did experience what an exponential growth is all about. And um, most people are not used to this because we are wired to, to think in linear term. And so just to explain again what exponentiality is all about. If you take a simple rule, like every something doubles at every iteration. So after five iteration, you will be at 32. But after 10 iteration, you will be at 1024. And so your 32 after five iteration will be a mere 3% of the final outcome after 10 iterations. 
But then if you continue this, after 50 iteration, you will be in order of magnitude of 1.1 to the power of 50. So what it illustrates is that exponentiality uh, is characterized by the fact that for some time you see nothing and suddenly you have an explosion. And from there, it moves really, really fast. So what we see in terms of technology, we see some characteristic, especially in the digital domain, of exponential growth. You might be aware of the so-called uh, Moore's law. Moore's law tells you that the computing power uh, is doubling. First, it was every two years, and now it's down to every 18 months. So um, if you plot all CPUs, so central processes unit, so what makes your computer uh, basically work and uh, calculate, uh, if you plot that on a, a graph, on a, a logarithmic graph, you'll see that you have a linear relations uh, of all the CPUs that have been developed since the 70s. That means that the relationship is quite strong. A few uh, months ago, a, uh, an organization called OpenAI compared uh, development in CPUs and uh, development in algorithmic uh, compute. And what they realized was that from 2012 to 2018, the doubling period went down to three and a half months which means that if you take the more slow doubling period every 18 months, from 2012 to 2018, a computer in 2018 would have been 12 times more powerful than in 2012. But with the growth of artificial intelligence, machine learning, algorithmic compute, this number grows to 300,000 times, meaning that you are 300,000 times more powerful in 2018, the algorithm in terms of computing power than in 2012. So this is an illustration of how fast technology is growing. Obviously there are some limitations to that. And this limitation has to do with, in order to get to this result, you need an extensive, uh, almost similar growth in energy consumption. And there are some physical limitation to uh, how much we can continue to grow like this. And it's not just in artificial intelligence or computing that we see such developments. Uh, if you take genomics, for instance, the first time we sequence the human genome, we started in 1990, ended in 2003, took 13 years, and it costs $2.7 billion. Nowadays, you have companies that are offering sequencing your DNA for $1,000 in one day, and some uh, companies are working for uh, sequencing in uh, one hour for $100. So here, what you see is that the technology is growing very rapidly. It is costly to implement, but once the technology has been developed, prices and are dropping very quickly, which means that uh, more people 
can afford it and use it. So basically, this is why uh, people are talking about uh, this era in terms of exponential era, because we see this pattern of exponential growth uh, developing in several uh, technological fields. It doesn't mean that we will grow forever, but for now, what we can see is that in your own lifetime, you can see dramatic changes that requires you to challenge and to change sometimes your assumption and your worldview. Thank you. Now, there are obviously, you know, a range of technologies that are experiencing this growth now, but, but which technologies is the security sector already embracing and how is this changing the way that private security companies go about their business? So what you have to understand is that current technological developments in emerging technologies are driven by the private sector. You know, unlike what we had, for instance, during Second World War, where the uh, United States decided to develop nuclear weapons, it gathered scientists in a desert, and uh, basically this guy in isolation developed the bomb. And then if you look at the proliferation of nuclear technology, even though it proliferated, still it was quite uh, limited and contained. Emerging technology these days are no longer uh, developed primarily by state, doesn't mean that states are not using them, but the push factors are coming uh, from uh, the private sector, which means that these technologies are available. Once they have been developed, they are available. And so the security industry is not immune, if you want, to using this, um, this, uh, these technologies. And uh, so you have a broad spectrum of uh, potential uses. You have, for instance, 3D printing uh, that uh, revolutionize uh, logistics. You have augmented reality and virtual reality uh, that allows a complete... Uh, the paradigm, paradigm, paradigm changes in uh, training. You have obviously uh, artificial intelligence, especially for now in the field of analytics and uh, big data. Um, big data are available. And so uh, companies uh, that are able to use this data and to extract meaning, especially through, through artificial intelligence could have uh, tremendous um, uh, impact and uh, in terms of surveillance, in terms of analysis. Obviously, cyber security and uh, the, uh, the, the combination of our cyber security and artificial intelligence, this is emerging. We, uh, this is a field where uh, uh, lots of developments did and need to be, uh, to be done, but uh, automating processes of, you know, uh, detection uh, is increasingly uh, available uh, and possible with uh, AI. The use of blockchain for anything that deals with authentication of uh, data, as well as probably one of the technologies most used are drones. Uh, and development in drone technology has really exploded over the last uh, 10, uh, 15 years, and drones are, are, are being used for uh, surveillance uh, purposes, but the future of drones uh, will increasingly be in the use in swarms. So uh, using multiple drones in a way that uh, 
you can uh, see uh, collective intelligence emerging. So a, a set of drones behaving in a, in a, like a, a single entity, if you want. And then anything that deals with the Internet of Things, so all the connected devices that could be used and sensor that could be used for surveillance, but also that can also be used to extract meaning and uh, uh, information. But it's not just technology uh, that is evolving, it's also new business models. In a sense that uh, these technologies allows maybe non-traditional actors that were maybe not in security to be uh, involved in uh, the, the, the security industries. If you look, for instance, at uh, uh, companies that deals with big data, once you, for instance, know how to extract data for mapping a specific ecosystem, you know, it could be uh, in, uh, in the industry, if you want to extract meaning in terms of what the solar industry in doing. Nothing prevents you to use the similar algorithm and apply them uh, for uh, a different, uh, different issues that deals uh, with, uh, with security. So does that mean that you know, the security industry itself is, is really an innovator and, and driver of technology itself? And, and what does that mean for the industry? I mean, is it, is it diversifying? Well, <laughs> you would have to define what the security industry is all about. You have a few companies that have, from the very beginning, a security DNA that have been important innovators. If you take, for instance, Palantir in the United States, uh, which uses big data analytics and uh, artificial intelligence to ex extract meaning. Yes, uh, that such companies are uh, innovating in the field, but what you see also are that other companies you know, uh, that are not specifically devoted to security could develop technology that could be used by security companies or, or end up also doing uh, security work. If you, if you look at Facebook, for instance, that has absolutely, uh, its DNA is absolutely not working in security. Facebook has a, uh, a counter and anti-terrorist unit because, you know, uh, ISIS um, was actually the first um, organization that understood how to weaponize uh, social media. And they did that by combining the use of, of ultraviolence with the virality of social media. And then when uh, ISIS and then other terrorist organizations use social media as a first multiplier, uh, the uh, companies, social media companies, Twitter, Facebook, and others had to react to that. And so had to invest in that kind of uh, capacity. So, uh, but it's not specific to the security industry. We are uh, living an era where disruption can actually come not from your competitor that you see uh, on the horizon, but by a company that maybe is not working in your field at all, but has developed a technology that could easily repurpose and scale. And this is also characteristic and uh, 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 a consequence of exponential growth. The scalability of this technology is phenomenal. And, uh, and the, the way it can be repurposed or used in different data sets 
is also very easy. So what technologies are on the horizon, perhaps not yet adopted, but that have the potential to disrupt the private security sector in the future? And how is this likely to impact the industry? So you have new technologies that are developed that are on the horizon, but also a combination of existing technology that could have a disruptive impact. So in terms of new technologies, uh, you have uh, neuromorphic computing, for instance, uh, that basically mimic the neurobiological architecture that is uh, present in your nervous system. And so the advantage of neuromorphic computing is that it's much faster than uh, CPUs that I mentioned uh, earlier. And so uh, they could also be used much closer to the device. They are not relying on the cloud. And that is what we call hedge computing. You know, with developments in international um, IoT, Internet of Things, um, what you need is a very strong bandwidth to communicate between your device and the cloud. So instead of using that model, you can actually store information where the device is that you will increase if you want uh, the speed and the efficiency of uh, your processes. So uh, neuromorphic computing could be used in drones and there are some experimentary conducted where uh, drones equipped with neuromorphic computing can react way faster than the drones that we see. They could react as the way a, you, uh, you would basically pilot uh, these drones. And they, if you add to that autonomy, that opens uh, from the gate for uh, drones that could be used uh, in a very uh, different way. Uh, and that could have also, could be used in uh, for offensive purposes, you know, because they, are, they would be uh, so reactive that they could maybe evade uh, uh, um, defenses. Uh, natural language processing is also, is not new, but uh, advances improvement have been made. So the ability to, to process, analyze large amounts of natural language data. And so uh, most machine learning algorithms are extracting meaning from pictures, but extracting meaning from uh, language is much more difficult, you know, because you, there is a need for to comprehend the meaning of a, a, a sentence. But as I mentioned also, the combination of emerging tech uh, will have a tremendous impact. Uh, the, co the, the combination of AI and neurosciences, AI and big data, but not just digital data, but increasingly we will uh, have uh, biological data, brain data that are available. So if you are able to combine this different data and extract meaning out of it, you'll get a very strong advantage over your competitor. The field of robotics is very important, autonomous robots. Uh, you might have seen, for instance, that uh, uh, you, you might know this company called Boston uh, Dynamics. Uh, yeah, lots of videos of these robots uh, jumping on uh, YouTube. And during this uh, crisis, COVID-19 crisis, Singapore used one of the robots called Spot to warn people in parks about social distancing. So the, this robot is like a dog, if you want, and is able to walk like a dog. 
and would go in a park and uh, remind people of social distancing. But the robot could also be used to screen patients or disinfect certain places. So here, um, the, the growth in robotics has been outstanding uh, over the last 10 years. And uh, the combination of robots with artificial intelligence will be probably disruptive. But I would also mention that um, it's not always emerging tech that has a capacity to be disruptive, you know, in, in, especially in the field of security. We also have to pay attention about the combination of legacy technology of low tech. And we had a clear example of the uh, dramatic impact this could have uh, with IED, you know, uh, improvised explosive devices that were the combination of, you know, simple mobile phone with explosive can and nails, and you could detonate a, uh, a bump at a distance. So uh, when we talk about technology, we shouldn't just focus on, you know, these high-tech emerging technologies, but also the way a legacy technology could be improved and enhanced by a simple means, simple technological uh, development as, uh, for instance, the mobile phones uh, and the combination with uh, explosive uh, demonstrated. Now, IBM's CEO earlier this week told members of the US Congress that the company would no longer offer facial recognition technology, citing the potential for racial profiling and human rights abuse. And this was followed on Wednesday this week by Amazon who said they'd be implementing a one-year moratorium on police use of its recognition technology, but it would still allow organizations focusing on stopping human trafficking to continue to use the technology. So we've got a technology here that can be used on the one hand to protect human rights, and on the other to perpetrate human rights. Uh, how, how do we reconcile these two things? Well, that's, a very important point, and um, and that is maybe a point that has been overlooked from the very beginning. As I mentioned earlier, these technologies, the main drivers are is the private sector. A company does not build a technology. Most companies do not build technology with security in mind. And so, if you take, for instance, your uh, software. You constantly receive updates, you know, uh, for for your for your softwares, because they were not built with the security uh, mindset. So this that that is the first problem. The second problem is the repurposing of technology. Technology could be used with you know good intention, but then it's sometimes very easy to repurpose the technology and have negative uh, implications. So if you take facial recognition uh, facial recognition could be used in very good way when it comes to you know identifying uh, specific uh, people in uh, on crime in crime or for, for for terrorism the problem is that the algorithm that have been used to train the algorithm uh, sorry the, the data that have been used to train the algorithm are inherently biased. And it's not that those uh, trained these algorithms chose data that were biased, but they are inherent bias in the data. 
there are some characteristics that are overrepresented. If you take, you know, even if you take any, all the, the pictures you could find on the internet, there are inherent bias where some uh, uh, racial pr uh, profile are overrepresented uh, or underrepresented. And so what we've seen uh, with facial uh, recognition is that uh, when it comes to uh, uh, Africans, for instance, uh, they were really uh, bad, they were false positive, a lot of false positives. So a lot of disparities when it comes to racial and, uh, and uh, um, race and, and gender. And so following uh, the event, the George Floyd uh, event in the US, Amazon and IBM decided to put on hold facial recognition uh, um, uh, technology. But it's not just these companies that develop this, this uh, the technology that raised some issue, at least they recognized there, there was a problem. A much smaller company called Clearview AI uh, developed a facial recognition uh, software that basically uh, run its algorithm against a database, data set from pictures that have been taken from social media and other uh, websites on the, on the internet. It is claimed that Clearview AI has a database of 3 billion images. To give you just a comparison, um, the FBI database has more than 400 million. But this uh, startup company that was created three years ago is using a data set of 3 billion images. And what happens with this, uh, the way it is, it is used is that you basically snap a picture of someone in the street and then you run this um, picture in uh, with uh, the application and then the application will identify the person and will give you information about this person. And so this application, uh, he's marketed as being uh, of use for uh, law enforcement authorities. And uh, as of now, uh, more than 2,000 uh, law enforcement agencies in 27 countries in the world are using it. But it's not just law enforcement agencies. You have also wealthy private individuals that are using it. And so this application raises strong ethical issues, you know, in terms of privacy, because if anyone can actually steal a picture by snapping a picture of you and then run it in a database and extract meaning about who you are, where you live, you can see how, uh, which kind of security implication this could have. So in all of this uh, develop, technological development, uh, we should be more careful in the way these technologies are being implemented. And it's very difficult. If you take, for instance, two technologies that have been used for good purposes, cryptography that enhance security on the internet, as well as blockchain uh, that basically led to development in cryptocurrencies and the blockchains allows to eliminate intermediaries. And so it provides a uh, it's more cost efficient 
for uh, the users. When you combine crypto or blockchain with cryptography, you end up a possible use in ransomware. And ransomware basically are malware that will block your access to, com to your computer until you are paying to unlock your computer. And that has been made possible because through cryptography, uh, you are able to block someone else's computer and is enabled to break uh, the code. And then uh, the criminal can be paid and not be traced because through blockchain, it's impossible to, 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 to trace where the money is going through in cryptocurrencies. So here you see that technologies that were developed with good intentions could be misused and repurposed. And so it's impossible to ask researchers or developers to think about all possible implications. So that's why we need to put in place governance uh, infrastructure and structures that can deal with that. But it's very difficult because, as I mentioned, these technologies are not primarily developed by states, but by the private sectors. And they are also characterized by the very high speed of proliferation. So once a technology has been developed and is in the digital, digital domain, it's almost impossible to stop its proliferation. An example of this, for instance, is deepfakes. You know, the technology of deepfakes uh, relies on generative adversarial networks, which are uh, two algorithms that are pitted against each other in a zero-sum game scenario, where one has to develop you know, uh, fake pictures, and the others has to uh, recognize that they are fake. And so this technology was developed in 2014. The first application uh, in terms of deepfake videos were published in the end of 2017. And since then, uh, the use of deepfake, especially in the porn industry, has just exploded. And so here you can see again how fast the technology is growing. And the problem is that governance is very slow, you know, to adopt legal or laws uh, to re uh, constrain development of a certain technology is time consuming. And uh, most of the time it comes way after harm, ha harm has already been done. And so here you have an asymmetry between the speed of this development and the way the international community can cope with it. This is fascinating, and I do want to get onto the kind of governance and, and oversight mechanisms in a, in a moment. But but are you therefore saying that technology is is really agnostic? It depends on how it's used, whether for good or bad. But but the technology itself is 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 really agnostic. Well, so that's a big uh, debate. Um, I tend to think that technology, with a few exceptions, is not either good nor bad. It's the way you use it that matters. Uh, you could maybe make a point for you know, deepfake, for instance. Um, 
so the idea of you take someone's pictures and then you merge it uh, on a different digital support. Uh, I don't see for now how you could use that in a positive way. You could maybe think about training purposes, you know, but from the very beginning, those who use that used it in a in rather malicious way. But again, most technologies are not good or bad. Um, facial recognition uh, algorithm, the same algorithm could be used, for instance, uh, to identify tumors, you know, in MRI pictures or, uh, or, or X-rays. And so these, they could have very positive uh, implications. But the same algorithm, when they are used to do racial profiling, then have negative consequences. So uh, that's why governance and governance structure are very important because you have to define the boundaries on the, how you can use these different uh, technologies. And um, for technologies that are really uh, dangerous or could could be used and and have tremendous negative impact. Maybe the scientific community, the academic co community, should rethink the um, you know the sacrosanct principle of open source uh, publication. Maybe not all information are uh, good for access to to anyone. And I think here, especially in the field of synthetic biology. You know, when you start um, developing mechanism techniques that can uh, synthetically engineer, you know, uh, very deadly viruses, uh, we have to be very careful in uh, the way we deal with information and uh, who have access to that kind of information. So finally, let's just focus a little bit more on, on the governance mechanisms then, um, and particularly looking at the, the private security sector, which is ICOCA's domain. What existing mechanisms are in place to mitigate risks of, of these technologies being harnessed in a way that could lead to human rights abuses? Um, and are these effective, if there are any? And if not, what, what can be done about this? So you have... The traditional international uh, legal frameworks, you know, on existing technology, weapons of mass destruction, and, and others. So, as I mentioned earlier, these technologies are rather in the hands of states, and I would say that it's way easier to deal with, uh, to deal with that. But already there, if you take, for instance, chemical weapons, uh, we've seen over the last uh, last year, a few years, that there has been constant violations, you know, in terms of the use of chemical weapons. And if you look at uh, ISIS, ISIS uh, used chemical weapons on more than 70 occasions uh, during uh, its reigns in Syria and, uh, and Iraq. Now, when it comes to new emerging technologies, the problem that we face is that Technologies develop much faster than governance. And when states try to tackle this issue, for instance, uh, in the field of lethal autonomous weapon systems, so 
uh, the ability to develop weapons that are able to select target on their own and basically go about uh, the objective on their own and maybe reprioritize their objectives. These weapons do not yet exist, but state have understood the uh, negative potential uh, impact that these weapons could have and developed a, a framework, a discussion uh, at the UN through the convention and certain convention weapons. They developed, set up a, a expert group, a governmental of, a group of experts on this autonomous weapon system. And this group has been discussing whether they should, we should issue a ban on this weapon or not. And this uh, group has been going on for uh, the last six years and come up with 11 principles. But what was really uh, visible here is that states have very different perspective on whether we should ban or not, we should limit, limit uh, the, the uses or not. And in the end, you end up with very general principle and that are still being discussed. And even though we end up with a treaties that is very unlikely, this will take time. And in the meantime, technology evolves very rapidly. So the problem here is that it's an issue of speed. Another one is indeed the problem of bringing together the relevant actors. And the UN is an inter-state uh, organization, whereas what you, the, the, the people you should bring into such debates are not just states, but the scientific community and the private sectors. And so here we need to rethink governance framework where the private sector is much more integrated in that kind of discussion. The problem is that the private sector and the scientific community are um, very often reluctant to talk about the security and the, the military uses, the potential uses of their uh, uh, technology. We can see that, for instance, uh, with Google or Amazon. You, know, you might uh, remember Project Maven in the United States, that was a collaboration between Google and uh, the US Department of Defense to automatize uh, real life uh, video feeds from drone to lessen the burden on the operators. So the algorithm would identify, pre-identify uh, anything that pops on, uh, on, on the screen of the, the operator by labeling what it is. And then that, when it was made public, that led to uh, outcry uh, in uh, the US, also within uh, Google. And Google then had to stop the contract. And uh, so what this affair reveals was that when it comes to security and military uses of this technology, these companies are reluctant to be engaged in such discussion because this has an impact on the image, but they still do uh, cooperate and develop uh, technologies that could be used for uh, security and uh, military purposes. So the point here is to say that we need to develop governance structure that takes into account uh, all the actors involved, but it is very difficult. And the problem is that most of the time, it's uh, all, always 
after the technology has been developed. And once the technology has been developed and is opening the public, you know, uh, it's very easy for people to use the technology in a way that were not intended by uh, the, uh, the creator, if you want. Well, this has been a, a fascinating discussion and uh, much to think about, especially for a multi-stakeholder initiative like ICOCA uh, that does bring the private sector together with, with governments and civil society. Um, hopefully there is a role for us here and, and hopefully with inputs uh, such as your own, uh, we will not be playing catch up all the time, but maybe try and also get ahead of this issue. But for today, thanks so much, Jean-Marc, really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you for having me on the show.